Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. I want to pay respect to the Wurundjeri people uh, on whose land we meet today and from my people, people the Wiradjuri and the Gummaroy bring respect and greetings uh, as well. Um, I was just really interested in what Paul was having to say a minute ago about the strategic landscape. And I suppose that's what I really want to talk to you about today. Uh, and my own reflections on how we lift the questions of Indigenous issues in Australia out of a parochial context and look at them more as part of the global questions that we're grappling with at the moment around issues of justice and democracy and what it is to live in a global order that's very much under strain. We're here to talk about reconciliation and mark yet another sorry day to reflect on where we are as a nation. But I want to take you back to before Kevin Rudd's apology to the Stolen Generations a decade ago in 2008. And I want to take you back to September 11, 2001. And that, of course, is a date that we know changed our world and profoundly altered the course of my own life. I remember it clearly. I was about to go to bed and, as I do, switched on the television news to take one last look at the world. There was the site of a burning tower in New York City. The first plane had struck the World Trade Centre. News reporters at the time were talking then about an accident, perhaps even speculation it may have just been a light aircraft. But as I watched, and I'm sure many of you on here today saw as well, another plane slammed into the second tower. And like most of you, I've never forgotten that image of the huge passenger jet hurtling at full speed low over the New York skyline and that roaring noise and the moment of impact. I remember I reached for my phone, it was late at night, and I called an American friend and said to her, you must turn on the television. Our world in that moment had changed. Within hours, the world knew of Al-Qaeda and the war on terror began and it hasn't ended. For me, within a matter of weeks, I was working for the American network CNN. It began a decade-long odyssey that took me to Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Syria, Jordan, Egypt. I saw bombings, far, far too many dead bodies. I spoke to those who had survived and to terrorists who carried out these attacks. Then in May 2001, I stood, or 2010 rather, I stood outside Osama bin Laden's house in Abbottabad in Pakistan after American troops had stormed in the middle of the night, killing the Al-Qaeda leader and bookending a remarkable decade. So why does this matter? And how does this fit into our discussion here today? Because it marks a fundamental turning point in our world. And it poses questions that impact profoundly on the future of our democracies and ultimately questions of Indigenous rights here in Australia. I've seen our world turn. It's been a front row seat at history. It's led me to ask harder and more complex questions about who we are, the role of race and identity and the future of our world order. I want to take you back even further now to the summer of 1989 when a then little-known analyst at the US State Department, Francis Fukuyama, 
penned an essay for the magazine National Interest. He called it the end of history, question mark. And that question mark is important, as you'll come to see. Now, this was after the fall of the Berlin War and the end, or the Berlin Wall and the end of the great Cold War standoff between East and West, communism versus capitalism. It had stretched for nearly half a century. It had fueled war in Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, amongst others. And it had at times threatened to tip our world into outright nuclear war. We came so perilously close. But here was the triumph of the West. Fukuyama argued that liberal democracy may constitute, in his words, the end point of mankind's ideological evolution, the final form of human government. Indeed, the end of history. It may sound strange to say the end of history because, of course, history does not end as such. There are always events and the lives of all of us continue, but Fukuyama was talking about history in a different and altogether more profound sense. He was talking about history as the struggle for justice, for freedom and for recognition. He was talking about an arc of progress that he believed had now delivered humanity to its summit. It wasn't an original idea. It was rooted in the work of the monumental German philosopher G.W.F. Hegel. It was Hegel who first believed he had seen the end of history when he glimpsed the triumphant Napoleon after the Battle of Jena in 1806. As Hegel said, I saw the emperor, this world spirit, go out from the city to survey his realm, stretching over the world and dominating it. Hegel, and thus Fukuyama, believed in history as progress, that we move through different epochs to an absolute spirit. For Hegel, this was Napoleon. For Fukuyama, this was the idea of liberal democracy. And central to this idea of freedom and recognition, yes, the campaign for recognition here in Australia, indigenous recognition in the constitution or in treaties, is rooted in philosophy. The Greeks called it themos, a part of the soul from which rises the desire for self-esteem. Hegel said this separated humans from animals. We desire to be recognised by other humans. Hegel said it was the very engine of history itself. People would stake their lives in combat to achieve it. As Fukuyama wrote, these parts of the human personality are critical to political life. To Hegel, an individual only achieves self-consciousness by being recognised by other human beings. We wish to be recognised by humans and recognised as humans. Someone subjugated by politics, history, hierarchy cannot be free. To Hegel, both the master and the slave were, were locked in a struggle to be free. Hegel saw this as the great, or saw it in the great revolutions of France and America that gave rise to new forms of political representation that threw off old hierarchies. To Hegel, history came to an end because the struggle for recognition had been met in societies categorised by universal and reciprocal recognition. Surveying the world in 1989, Francis Fukuyama certainly believed the world had reached its end point. As he wrote back then, 
As mankind approaches the end of the millennium, the twin crises of authoritarianism and socialist central planning have left only one competitor standing in the ring as an ideology of potential universal validity. Liberal democracy, he wrote, the doctrine of individual freedom and popular sovereignty. In many ways, that argument is borne out. According to Freedom House, which measures the spread and health of democracy, in 1970, there were fewer than 30 countries that counted themselves as democracies. By 2014, there were more than 140, about 70% of the world. And who's sitting here today, all the troubles that we have in our own country, would opt to live in Syria or Iran or Russia or China than to live with the freedoms that we enjoy in liberal democracies. As Winston Churchill famously said, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. The end of history indeed. But remember how I mentioned that question mark at the end of the title of Fukuyama's essay, the end of history question mark. In later writings, including a book on the subject, Fukuyama dispensed with the question the end of history became a statement of fact. He would wish that he hadn't. What we have seen in the three decades since the end of the Cold War, far from the end of history, is in fact the return of history. New ideological battles have emerged, new battles from old wars. The world today is awash with conflict. We've seen a resurgence of sectarianism, authoritarianism and political tribalism. The very idea of liberalism that undergirds democracy is under attack. The political scientist David Runciman has written that this is the crisis facing Western democracies. We don't know what failure looks like anymore and we have no idea how much danger we are in. The political scientist Peter Mayer opened his 2013 book Ruling the Void, the Hollowing Out of Western Democracy with this sentence, the age of democracy is dead. Political parties, he argued, have become disconnected from wider society. There is a fractured political landscape, crises of legitimacy and effectiveness. Three significant events stand out. One is the rise of Islamist terrorism, as I talked about with Al-Qaeda, the global financial crisis, and the increasing power of China. When I saw those twin towers collapsing, I was watching the return of history. This was a rejection of the very values that Fukuyama's liberal democracies were said to represent by a small, but what's proved to be enormously influential, radicalized group of Islamists. Bin Laden's Al-Qaeda have weaponized religion, not for the first time in history, and violently rejected the ideals of universalism and individualism. In 2008, the collapse of the big banks, which sparked what has become known as the global financial crisis, rocked the foundations of the liberal democratic order. On a personal level, economic collapse has cost jobs and homes, and more broadly, as The Economist magazine has pointed out, the damage the crisis did was psychological as well as financial. It revealed fundamental weaknesses in the West's political systems undermining the self-confidence that had been one of their greatest assets. People who lost their homes and livelihoods looked on as the newly elected US President Barack Obama 
a man whose own elevation to the White House was meant to presage a new dawn for his country, let the bankers off scot-free. They were deemed too big to fail. Those who profited from a corrupt, exploitative system who rigged the game in their favour, signing up gullible, vulnerable people to a complex financial... what amounted, really, to a financial shell game, paid no price. The government propped them up as people went to the wall. The global financial crisis has shone a spotlight on the growing inequality, issues that I know you've been discussing here today, that is eroding the democratic order. If democracies cannot deliver on the promise of a better future, then the future of democracy itself is at risk. While the liberal democratic West has struggled, China has continued to grow. It was able to withstand the global financial crisis and suddenly present an alternative. The Chinese Communist Party could claim that it had a better model. I spent a decade reporting from China for CNN, witnessing the economic miracle that lifted half a billion people out of poverty and took a country that was once known as the sick man of Asia to the point where it is, by some measurements, the biggest economy in the world. And China has done so while rejecting the universal ideas of human rights or democracy. As it gets richer and more powerful, it is not embracing liberalism, but doubling down on authoritarianism. As someone who reported there, who was locked up on several occasions, harassed, surveilled, had their family continuously followed, I can tell you it is much easier to report in a country like Australia than to report in China. But others have been looking on. Countries have taken an autocratic turn, weakening their own democracies. Turkey, under Recep Tayyip Erdogan, is cracking down on opponents and locking up journalists. Vladimir Putin jails his rivals, and Hungary's Viktor Orban has transformed from a one-time student democracy campaigner to a political demagogue. Indeed, he has introduced a new phrase to politics, illiberal democracy. Democracy stripped of all of those liberal values that we actually continue to try to hold on to. Freedom House, which once counted the spread of democracy, released a report, Freedom in the World 2015, discarding democracy and the return of the iron fist. It's found an erosion in civil liberties and rule of law, claiming that democracy, remember that was at a high point in the early 2000s, was now under greater threat than at any point in the last 25 years. Since then, two more events have shaken the global politics, Brexit and the Trump presidency. In the words of the political writer David Goodhart, the two events marked not so much the arrival of the new populist era, but its coming of age. Goodhart says they were about a core values divide. People who felt that their country and their political leadership no longer spoke to them. That they were looking for alternatives, even if that alternative meant leaving the European Union or electing Donald Trump. Britain's vote to leave the EU highlighted a flaw in the European project and globalisation more broadly, that it weakens ideas of national sovereignty, 
you'll often hear people say that they've lost their country, that the open borders, open trade, free trade, the free movement of people has eroded the sense of what it is to belong. David Goodhart has written that the desire to transcend nation, to put nation in the past, was at the heart of the European project. But as Ivan Krustov, another political writer, has said in his book After Europe, the EU has always been an idea in search of a re reality. Countries lose control of their borders and their economies and blowback is inevitable. Donald Trump identified those same anti-globalisation, anti-deindustrialisation tensions to win the White House, campaigning on secure borders and tougher trade, America first, anti-immigration and America first. He has ridden this wave of populism that has seen disruptors win office or strengthen their foothold in elections around the world. There is a paradox where democracy is being eroded by those who are using democracy itself to entrench their power. The Harvard University professors Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt have written a book called How Democracies Die. Democracies die, they say, in war. They also die at the hands of elected leaders, presidents or prime ministers who subvert the very process that brought them to power. They worry about Donald Trump's attack on some of the institutions of democracy, judges and the media, and fear that the United States will abandon its role as a democracy promoter. But, they write, this democratic drift precedes Trump. The soft guardrails of American democracy, they say, have been weakening for decades. Trump is a litmus test of our political age. A celebrity non-politician whose pledge to drain the swamp resonated with an angry, ignored electorate. <coughs> Levitsky and Ziblatt now worry about a post-Trump future marked by polarisation, more departures from unwritten political conventions and increasing institutional warfare. In other words, democracy without solid guardrails. So what about Australia? We were cushioned against the worst of the global financial crisis in no small part because of China and its thirst for our national resources. But here too, democracy as we know it is under stress. Here too, there is a loss of faith and trust in institutions. We've had royal commissions into our justice system, our churches, and currently our banks. Public disaffection is growing, especially with the major parties. At the 2016 federal election, up to a third of voters rejected the ALP or the Liberal National Coalition. Opinion polls indicate nothing has changed. At state and federal levels, there is increased volatility rewarding more minor parties and independents. Voters have shown themselves especially keen on shaking up the make the makeup of the, uh, of the Senate. People are fleeing to the fringes, to the margins where elections are increasingly fought and won. Parties like Pauline Hanson's One Nation wield an outsized influence. So all of this brings us to the question of Indigenous rights. The survey of the globe post-Cold War is crucial. This goes to Paul's idea about the strategic landscape. Indigenous issues go to the very heart of the liberal democratic 
experiment. Indigenous rights pose critical questions for liberalism, questions we're still struggling to answer. The liberal project emerging out of the 17th century age of enlightenment encompassed also the age of discovery, dispossession and subjugation of indigenous peoples. As the political philosopher Duncan Iverson has pointed out, indigenous peoples were excluded from participating equally in the establishment of the international state system. Some indigenous people reject liberalism as an ideology fundamentally incompatible with their claims for justice. It is, in my view, a self-defeating view that ignores potentially liberating ideas contained in liberalism itself. As Iverson has pointed out, it's not a matter of simply discarding European thought, but seeing how it can be taken hold of, translated, renewed from and for those people on the margins. Iverson has said, can liberal democracy become genuinely intercultural? He points out the claims of indigenous people can question the source and the legitimacy of state authority. He asks, how can a nation become morally rehabilitated? How might the narratives of the nation be retold? The narrative of the nation. Think about that phrase because it asks us, who are we? It raises cr critical questions of history and identity. The French historian Ernest Renan was grappling with these themes more than a century ago. Renan wrote that nations seek a collective identity. A nation, he wrote, is a soul, a spiritual principle. But how to form a nation out of the conflicting stories of our past? This past year, we have seen Indigenous people present the nation with a unique opportunity. The Uluru Statement emerged from a nationwide deliberative process of discussion and negotiation with Indigenous communities, peak bodies and individual leaders, conducted by the Federal Parliament-appointed Referendum Council. The negotiations culminated in a meeting at Uluru, drawing together representatives from across the country, and the statement calling them for, amongst other things, a truth and justice process, a move to drafting a makarata. Makarata is a Yongu word from Arnhem Land that, acknowledges, that speaks of acknowledging peace after a struggle. The Uluru Statement sought to blend the fundamental spiritual sovereignty of Indigenous people with the political sovereignty of the Commonwealth. Its key recommendation was an Indigenous body, a voice, enshrined in the Constitution to ensure that Indigenous people have some input into policy making directed toward them. The Uluru Statement is a remarkable document. It is a profound statement and commitment to the principles of democracy. That it comes from those who have carried the greatest burden and felt the most estranged from this nation's democratic process makes it all the more remarkable. The Prime Minister, as we know, has rejected that key recommendation of a constitutional voice, but the fight goes on. Remember Hegel and what he said about the fight for recognition and how it drives history. 
Indeed, to borrow from Frank Bukiyama, the Uluru Statement may represent our end of history moment, when we complete our liberal democracy. This is a critical issue for us as a nation, and it happens at a time when liberal democratic traditions are under siege. When some are talking about the end of liberalism and the death of democracy. This is the defining issue of our times. There is no more important issue right now than whether the foundations of a global order, a global order that has been maintained post-World War II, a global order that has led to us living longer, that has led to the longest sustained period of global peace the world has ever known, that has made us richer and healthier, that has led to innovations that, as we heard previously, allow us now to imagine a whole new future. All of that, potentially, could be at risk by the struggle of our age. Do those fundamental principles of democracy and freedom persist, or do we lurch into a new era of authoritarianism and illiberalism. And that is the choice that many people are making right now. The question of indigenous rights fits into a global struggle for justice, recognition and liberalism. If those people who have carried the heaviest weight and borne the greatest burden can present what Gullaroy Unipingu called a gift to the nation. The Uluru Statement, allowing a way into this democracy for those people who've been locked out. If Indigenous people can present that to Australia at this time, it's an extraordinary gift and one that we should not overlook. I'm heartened by the words of the French political writer and diplomat Alexis de Tocqueville, who in the 19th century famously traveled to America to encounter the nation's experiment in democracy. He saw the best and the worst. But as he wrote, democracies always look weaker than they really are. They are all confusion on the surface, but have lots of hidden strengths. The challenge for us in Australia is whether among those hidden strengths is a capacity to complete the work of this country and to bring those people locked out of the idea of democracy into what it means to be Australian in the 21st century. Thank you so much. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the Communities in Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes Store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.